The following programming has been made possible in part by the generous support of BITS, Blind Information Technology Specialists. An affiliate of the American Council of the Blind, BITS provides career development for computer professionals. For over 50 years, BITS has been on the forefront of industry, promoting and advocating on information access and technology that improves the quality of life for people who are blind and visually impaired. Learn more about BITS programs and how to become a member by visiting their website at www.bits-acb.org. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Um, This is Tabitha Kenlin, and I am so excited um, to have a special bonus session of um, the two reading group discussions that I run. Um, Every Monday, we have an 18th century reading group. And on second and fourth Wednesdays, we have a disability studies reading group. And today, we're sort of melding those two things and welcoming a very special guest, Professor Chris Moonsey from the University of Winchester, all the way across the pond in England. Um, He is a professor of English literature and focuses on the 18th century and disability studies. So he is going to talk about both of those things at the same time. And um, Professor Munzi is going to talk for about 20 minutes or so, and then we'll have time for discussion and Q&A. And I'm going to step aside and let Chris take over. Uh, Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm really delighted to be talking to your group. Uh, When Tabitha uh, invited me, I said yes straight away because... uh, Uh, I'm really keen on um, passing on uh, information about our history. And um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off with a little bit, uh, tell you you a little bit about myself and about uh, my, the way I work, about uh, my life experiences. Then uh, I'm going to move on to a brief history of blind people in England up to the 18th century, because as far as I'm concerned, uh, the 18th century is uh, when, uh, uh, the end of the 18th century is when everything stopped. Uh, and uh, I'm going to uh, give you a view of uh, three blind writers who were uh, writing during the 18th century so that uh, you can get some sense of the sorts of things that um, uh, people were doing and also how they were living, which I think you, uh, I hope you're going to find as interesting as I do. Anyway, start on with myself. Uh, I had a brain injury when I was very young, uh, and I didn't actually comprehend it until I was 50, and I noticed that people no longer had heads. And uh, I was uh, very much expected to uh, resign from my work. But luckily, uh, my 50th birthday and my diagnosis uh, came at the same time as the uh, British Equality Act in 2010, which is like the ADA, uh, which required reasonable adjustments uh, from my employer. So they had to keep employing me, and that was absolutely splendid. It was also extremely difficult. Uh, but there's another government program that we have, uh, and I, I, I think you might be uh, happy to hear about this, but it, uh, it's called Access to Work. And um, it provided me with Stan Booth, who you will see, who is also uh, uh, in this group. Uh, and he will talk very briefly sometime during my talk. 
And with Stan's help, I've been able to continue to teach full-time research and write. And at the moment, I'm engaged in a major project to uh, uh, find out the history of other blind people who continue to work. Uh, and if you'd like to ask me about that project at the end, I'd be delighted to, to talk to you about it. Um, the book uh, which uh, Tabitha uh, in invited me to talk about uh, is uh, a book called Sight Correction, Vision and Blindness in 18th Century Britain. Uh, and it comes from uh, the University of Virginia Press. Uh, in it, uh, I argue a very different case from the usual case uh, of disability, because I don't like the word disability because it's a negative. Uh, what I do is I, t uh, I develop a term called variability uh, with the idea that everybody is the same, only different from everybody else. And uh, nobody is completely able and nobody is completely disabled. So why don't we just call ourselves variable people? Uh, that's uh, something else that you might like to discuss at the end and I can talk about in more detail. Anyway, I want to now move on to uh, the history of blind people uh, in uh, Britain. Uh, and uh, up until 1562, the dissolution of the monasteries, blind people cared for uh, by, uh, by the monks. Uh, Henry VIII did absolutely nothing uh, for uh, people with impairments after 1562. And it was his daughter Elizabeth who brought out poor laws in 1600 uh, because there were so many blind, uh, uh, so many uh, beggars on the streets who had previously been looked after by monks. The poor laws really failed uh, because there were so many people who uh, were called sturdy beggars and uh, they claimed any money that uh, was uh, available rather than the money going to good causes. And at the beginning of the 18th century, when all good things happened, uh, charities started to be set up to uh, cater for people with specific impairments. And the very first charity that was set up for blind people uh, was by the Painter Stainers Company in 1710. Uh, it tended to look after its own members who were people who painted paintings and people who stained uh, uh, wood so that uh, it looked like other sorts of wood. Uh, but in 1718, the Dorothy, Dorothy Wilson charity was set up in York. And that was a charity that was actually wound up only a couple of years ago. Uh, but it was set up to give uh, six blind people two pounds a year, which uh, was supposedly enough to keep them alive. Now, this is where my involvement begins, because uh, I'm a professor of 18th century studies at the University of Winchester. Uh, and uh, I was looking to write something about blindness. And uh, I was searching on a wonderful database called 18th Century Collections Online for the word blind and found it in so many contexts that in the end I uh, searched for blind in the title. And I found eight little books by a hitherto unheard of writer called John Maxwell of York Being Blind. And 
uh, I was really excited about this and uh, I needed to travel. Uh, I needed to go to York because there was no research that had been done on um, uh, on John Maxwell of York. Nobody knew anything about him. So we ended up uh, having to go to the uh, York Minster Library. Now, it was just before these visits to York that Stan started working with me. And when we were sitting in the uh, Minster Library at uh, York, um, uh, we uh, discovered that they had a single copy uh, of the uh, York Times from the 18th century. And I ordered it just as a matter of course, because I've been working with 18th century materials forever. And it arrived and Stan took one look at it and he said, is this really 18th century? Yes, I said, it was just a flimsy piece of paper to me. And he was so excited, I realized I had the right person to work with. Now, I'd just like Stan to uh, tell you something about himself. So I'm going to turn my microphone off uh, and let him talk for just a couple of minutes. Uh, thanks, Chris. Um, you know, I love talking about myself, so I'll jump straight in. Um, my background... Um, is of uh, my education is mainly science and math. So it was a big change to come to the arts. Um, now, previously, I'd worked in local government where I'd done a lot of um, disability and inclusion awareness training. Unfortunately, I'd had some really good training within that council, so well done, Bromley Council. Um, and I was aware of both physical and visual impairments. Um, as I say, the training I'd had had been a particular one where they'd put special glasses on me and we'd had to, that emulated the macular degeneration. So I had a good, a good awareness. I won't say an understanding. I had a good awareness of the process, of the, of the difficulties in processing vision. And the credit crunch came along and I thought, time to get out of local government because that would be the first place they start doing the hacking and slashing. And I'd recently done my master's in uh, health and disease and I thought, yeah, go off and do something different. Um, I knew Chris through a um, a friend who lived in the block of flats I lived in because we lived in the same estate in London. And I thought, oh, sorry, excuse the expression. Um, why not? You know, I'm 40, time for a change. And so I started working for Chris, uh, never really being aware of the 18th century. And now I advocate everybody should learn the 18th century because it is a fantastic place. It's where everything began, as Chris says. And one of the things I love doing is looking at the Burnley collection, which is a collection of 18th century newspapers, because they are just so fascinating to read about because they focus on people's lives and not as we see in modern day newspapers where we get lots of commentary. And as you can see, I can talk for England. So I'm going to stop now. Is there anything you want to ask me, Chris? I think I've missed out. No, uh, that's absolutely fine, Stan. I shall I'll, I'll shut up now. Thank you for listening, okay. folks. Nice to meet you. So the two of us started uh, working together in York and uh, we were working on John Maxwell and we discovered all sorts of exciting things about his life. Uh, he received payments from the Dorothy Wilson Trust, uh, but we couldn't work out why they stopped 20 years or more before he died. We also uh, discovered that he was made a freeman of the city of York and being a freeman really was to be allowed to vote in uh, uh, mayoral elections uh, and so forth. Uh, but what we discovered uh, as well about um, uh, John Maxwell was that the eight little books that he had published had enormously long subscription lists. 
Now, what a subscription list in the 18th century was, was a list of something like 500 people who had bought the book before it was published, and they would pay half before, and then they would pay half when it was published. And what we uh, worked out was that uh, John Maxwell was financing himself by writing these little books, and uh, that by the time uh, he'd written about six of them, uh, and he we think he published about one every other year, uh, he was making enough money out of selling his books to keep himself. Now, uh, this is from uh, the first of his books, and it's a long poem called The Reflection. When at the first good heaven created man, and while he kept his native purity, he needs must much enjoy those delights such as this prospect gives. Heaven placed him in a garden for such scenes well suit with innocence and is a means of heightening piety as music in the church inflames our love and charms us into duty. Reflect my soul and take a full survey of all the wonders that are here displayed. Extend thy faculties, let memory rise, and trace each beauteous blossom as it blows. Then call upon the, uh, uh, then call up understanding to apply each circumstance accruing from the whole. And whilst I gaze upon those miracles, be thou my will determined in this choice, steady to obey thy power, which wrought them all, which is so plainly seen in various ways, I find it in the odours of this morn. Now, what I find absolutely astounding about this as a piece of poetry written by a blind poet is that he uses visual metaphors throughout. Uh, he talks about prospects, which are long views. Uh, but what uh, I, and it takes somebody with a visual impairment to realize what's going on, which is so plainly seen in various ways, I find it in the odors of this morn. In other words, John Maxwell is telling people who can see to enjoy the garden in their way, and he enjoys the garden in his way. He enjoys the garden by uh, smelling it. Now, John Maxwell was what set the book off, and uh, I um, uh, was keen to find other people uh, who made money out of their writing. And uh, the, um, the next one I discovered was a man called Thomas Gills, who uh, wrote poetry in Bury St. Edmunds. And uh, he wrote uh, enough poetry that he could keep his wife and his daughter. He didn't use subscription lists. Uh, on the contrary, he sold his poems wherever he could sell them. And a lot of his poems are religious catechisms. And this is an example of one because I think they're absolutely delightful. My hands are idle, but my head is still at work to get my bread by ways that none can justly blame in one that's poor and blind and lame. 
Now this of making verse tis true and going out to sell it too is all the business I can do. It's just charming. Now, this is a man who uh, had been a clockmaker and had probably su suffered some kind of stroke. And uh, he uh, uh, became uh, intermittently blind. And in fact, in 1710, he got his sight back again and wrote a glorious poem about it. But you know, the fact that there he is as a blind writer working to get my bread by ways that none can justly blame. And all he can do is make verse and go out and sell it too. I just, he's, he's wonderful. He's just such a, 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 an example to me. And I really felt uh, history rolling back with the decisions that I'd had to make in 2010 about whether I continued to work or not. Anyway, he also sold his poems uh, on the street. And one of his poem poems is about a popular duel that was fought between Lord Moon and Duke Hamilton in Hyde Park. And we can imagine Tom Gill standing by the gate saying, poem about the, poem about the duel, poem about the duel. Um, the poem itself uh, exists only in uh, a single copy in the National Library of Scotland. At least that's the only copy that anyone knows still exists. But for me, the best of his poems, which is just the, the most wonderful piece of poetry I've re ever read about making money as a, a blind poet, uh, is a poem of his called The Blind Man's Case. And I'm going to read from, uh, from it again. Oppressed with cares, fatigued with labours, encompassed round with unknown neighbours, by foes maligned, by friends neglected, by none esteemed, but few by few affected, with foggy ale and bitter beer, with bread and flesh extremely dear, with potent cheese and frowy butter, in dirt and stink and noise and clutter, in ruinous room three stories high, up close dark staircase here I live, with little Deb and Nab my wife, who share in these fatigues of life, sometimes to please herself, no doubt, at garret window Deb looks out, and from that elevated station casts down her eyes with admiration, to see in miry streets below what different throngs pass to and fro, as lawyers, ministers and laymen, chair-bearers, hackneymen and draymen, black chimney-sweepers, brawny porters, powdered bow, brave as courtiers, fine misses primmed with paint and patches and tattered girls that sell card matches, starved ragged boys with dirty faces cry to a penny long thread laces, some folks decked richly to excess, and some in such a wretched dress as scarcely covers nakedness. Now, of course, what we have here is the description of a small family business. Little Deb, his daughter, looks out of the window from their, three, uh, their third story uh, uh, walk up in central London. Tom makes up the verse 
Nab, his wife, writes it down. And then they took it to a, a printer called Richard Janeway, who was also from Bury St. Edmunds, where they were from. And then Tom sells it on the streets. It's a small family business. They continued to uh, work. Uh, he, uh, the, the family continued to function, and uh, Tom Gills uh, was uh, at the, the blind man of Bury St. Edmunds was at the centre of it. The third person I want to talk to you about uh, is uh, Priscilla Poynton. Now, for a woman, being blind was quite devastating because she was not expected to get married because she was not expected to be able to look after a husband. Priscilla Poynton calls herself P.P. in her poems, and that's what I, I call her because that's how she addressed herself. She became blind after a headache when she was 12 years old. She began writing poetry about being blind called The Consolatory Ode. And it was so successful that she took to the stage, reciting extempore verses straight out of her head. And she toured all the way around Birmingham, uh, in all of the cities around Birmingham, uh, building up the longest subscription list I've ever found. It was 1,600 names rather than the usual 500. The poems are often verse epistles. And uh, one of them, which you can ask me about later, is about being caught short at a party. And it's actually become quite a famous poem now. Many of them were written in the form of Valentines to Mr. J.P., who was probably um, uh, uh, John Pickering. And she would write, as it's holiday time, if you'll come and we'll be gay. Lovely Miss L and N, I expect them at tea. Mr. JW and likewise SP. You will meet them both here, my friend crowned with glee. If agreeable, sir, your German flute bring. And, uh, and a music book too, since I promised to sing. Now that's uh, one of the Valentines to JP. But she's always angry because she knows she will not get married. And it looks ra rather like she liked J.P. John Pickering quite a lot. First, she philosophizes. And it's a, this is a very feminist piece of writing. I love it. But once wed, we find it to our cost that in the wife the goddess soon is lost. No more, you sigh, no more in transport view, for straight we're mortals and mere husbands, you. And then she rages. With me, ye powers, let friendship ever reign. I ask no more, nor let me ask in vain. For should I love and meet with no return, how would my bosom like to Sappho burn? She's really angry because she wants to love, but she thinks she will meet no return. She says, pity on me, perhaps they might bestow, but pity cannot ease the pangs of woe. And she certainly understands the pain that pity evokes in us blind people. In the event, the money she made from her 1770 collection allowed her to become an independent woman. She bought a house in Sorgal, a tiny village near Chester in Cheshire, which is my home county. 
And there she waited in that cottage for 10 years until John Pickering's mother died and the two of them were free to get married. It was a great affair. They were married in Shottick Church, which is one of the most beautiful of the uh, Northern English churches. And they had their wedding breakfast in Park Gate, which was the largest port in Cheshire, which is now um, silted up. They had a son, and she wrote poems about uh, the son, and she wrote more Valentines to John, having married him. But sadly, he died in 1792. They'd had about 10 years together. Uh, Thereafter, she put together a second collection of poems, but with less success. And uh, the second uh, collection to me is really interesting because many of the verse ideas and even some of the lines are repeated from the first. And it took me a while to realize she did not use written language as an aid memoir because she couldn't see it. The verses existed just in her head. But She had also, like the other two men, been able to become independent. And what my latest project is to try to work out, well, these are all writers, and I would know about them because they leave stuff behind that I work with all the time. I'm a professor of literature. But what did other blind people and people with sight impairments, how did they get by? And so that's where my attention is turning to now. So anyway, thank you for listening to me. And uh, if you would like to ask questions, then please go ahead. Thank you so much. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, And yeah, I remember hearing about Priscilla at your talk at at B6 last year. Yeah, she's she's awesome. so yeah, we have a fair number of people, which is great. Um, so let's do use the, the raise hands so that we all get to take turns. Um, you know, feel free to make a comment, ask Chris a question about, um, something he mentioned, something you'd like to know more about the other projects, um, that he mentioned. And, um, I guess Belinda, can I put you in charge of, of calling on people and lowering hands? So Chanel. I'll think of a more intelligent question in a little bit, but I was just curious. Um, you mentioned the lady, um, Priscilla, was blind at age 12. Uh, were some of the gentlemen blind since birth or, oh, uh, let's see. You mentioned one of them. I'm, I'm just curious because sometimes that can affect uh, somebody's perspective. And so. I was just yes. curious. Uh, no, um, the largest cause of blindness uh, in the 18th century was smallpox. Oh, okay. And uh, one of the characters, in fact, uh, I'm talking about my major project, but I have a sideline project on the uh, third Lucasian professor of mathematics at Cambridge University. Uh, uh, who was called Nicholas Saunderson. And uh, he uh, became blind uh, at, at two months old. So he had no memory of vision at all. Um, and uh, the uh, smallpox took both of his eyes completely. Uh, but he was still able to uh, survive as a, um, uh, uh, as a professor of mathematics. Um, uh, a lot of people uh, in the 18th century 
uh, became blind later in life. And uh, part of the book uh, is uh, about cataracts. And uh, there was a particular operation called couching, uh, which uh, um, uh, happened to people. But um, uh, I'm trying to think, Thomas Blacklock, uh, who is another poet, uh, he was also um, blind from birth. Uh, and um, uh, But it, what is fascinating, actually, about the records uh, of the Dorothy Wilson Trust is that uh, the difference between blind and partially sighted was well known during the 18th century. And uh, for a while... Um, there was one particular female claimant who was thought to be not blind enough uh, to receive the two pounds uh, a year. Uh, but uh, don't forget, there were glasses in the 18th century so that, that people who had uh, problems uh, with uh, just sort of ordinary problems with blurred vision uh, could be uh, treated uh, just by wearing glasses. Thank you. Okay, we've got Jeanette next. You can unmute. First and foremost, I am so thrilled that you're speaking to us. I know from my own history and heritage, my uh, mother's family was from England, that England in the 20th century had a more progressive attitude about assisting and, and also making sure that education happened in ways that you didn't always see in this country. I guess my question is, in the 18th century, you have these poets who really got what they were up against. But do you think that society in general shunned the blind people in the in that century or do you think they saw their accomplishments as pretty astounding against all odds? I think uh, the answer to that uh, would probably be that it's hard to say that they were shunned. Uh, and there are some uh, stories, and I just can't, rem I can't recall it and bring it to mind, uh, but there's a story of a blind daughter of uh, a wealthy Norfolk family, and uh, it was a bestseller. Um, but generally speaking, I think uh, the 18th century attitude towards people who couldn't work was that they were a burden on society. And uh, I can explain that in the sense that uh, there was no, nothing that anyone, there were no charities for children. It was expected that parents would look after blind children until uh, 1792, when the first blind school was set up in Liverpool, which is just north of Cheshire, where I was born. In fact, the, the blind school building is still there in central Liverpool by the Royal Philharmonic Hall. It was set up as a school where children would learn to play a musical instrument so that they could uh, be useful. And um, the children uh, at the school would, largely speaking, uh, learn to play the organ. 
um, so that they could uh, play at uh, church services. It would give them a job to do and also that they could um, uh, teach other children uh, music. But at the same time, the blind school has this rather chilling aspect to it because the adult blind people were uh, employed there to weave baskets uh, and uh, you know, they had men's quarters and women's quarters, and it was probably like slave labor. And the language that was used in the document to set up the school is not at all pleasant. I'll leave it there. Interesting that that begs the whole question of <clears throat> was there choice? And obviously there wasn't choice. You did what you did. Unless you defied the odds, as our poets you mentioned did. Thank you. Yes, that's absolutely right. Okay, next, uh, Herbie, you're up next. Uh, good afternoon, first of all. Great presentation. Thank um, you. I actually, um, I'm actually half British, half American. My mom comes from, my mom's side of the family does come from England. So, uh, you know, I want to, but I'm more Americanized. So I'd really, I'm, I'm really finding the fascination of, uh, the experience of blind people in England, an interesting one. I am also a history major, so, um, but I have several questions. One, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think Braille was invented yet. So, the, so I'm guessing like they had, these writers had scribes. Um, That's correct. Braille was invented by Louis Braille uh, in, uh, just after the French Revolution in France. That's what I thought. And uh, so it was not available for any of my people, which, of course, that's there in, in uh, Tom Gills's business model. He, he, he thinks the poetry up. His wife writes it down. I mean, um, and Priscilla Point. Yeah, Priscilla Point. It is challenging. And Priscilla Poynton also used an amanuensis, and she describes her amanuensis. Uh, but she was obviously a very sociable person, and people liked her, and they uh, helped her out as much as she could, as they could. But she spent a long time in Chester, where she had some relatives. And I think she sort of became, uh, sort of, uh, during the 1760s, so just before these poems were published, the first book of poems were published, I think she became quite a celebrity in the same way that John Maxwell became a celebrity. Sorry, that's just an answer to your first question. Go on. Okay, sorry. Two other questions. Um, one is a quick one, and one maybe a bit, well, I don't know how long it will be, but um, the, first of all, the more longer one is, so at the beginning of your presentation, you said they, you seem to indicate that things stopped at the end of the 18th century, so I wasn't sure if you were referring to your research, because that's not your, what you're interested in, 19th century um, England, or did something change culturally towards how people who are blind were exactly, or- exactly both. Exactly both. Um, that for me, I am an 18th century literary historian, but also the 19th century experience of blindness was very different. Um, uh, that there was a move to incarcerate people who were different. And so the mental hospitals, I, I mentioned the Liverpool Blind School was set up in 1792 right. uh, and was that set up to uh, educate children, but in fact 
put all the blind adults, all the blind adults were put in it. By 1820, there was a similar blind school in at least one in every major city in the country. And it's part of our history that I'm just really unhappy with, so I don't want to work in it. Oh, well, cause I, I, I'd be very curious to you know get more details on that. And so I guess my third and final question is, what was that database you recommended, you know, you used earlier? And then just if you can name any resources that might go beyond what you study, I'd just be curious. Um, 18th Century Collections Online uh, is the database. And uh, if... Um, uh, if you say you're a history major, uh, your university yep. may have it. Yeah, um, uh, it. Um, uh, I know we have it, access to JSTOR, but I'm not sure if we have access to that one. So, uh-huh. um, there's a similar one for 19th century as well. Um, I can't remember exactly what it is, but I it's called it. 19th century collections mm-hmm. online. There you go. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well. <laughs> But Tabitha, I'm not sure whether you know this, but Herbie, uh, if you become a member of the American Society for 18th Century Studies, uh, you get access to 18th Century Collections online as part of your membership. It's a new program, so you'd have to check. But it is a database of every text published... uh, um, Stan is sending me messages saying that, that uh, it hasn't been started yet. It's still under discussion. So if it happens, it will be great. Uh, but the 18th century collections online contains uh, copies of every book, almost every book, published from 1701 to 1800. There is also the, the uh, database that Stan mentioned, which is the Bernie Collection, of uh, newspapers, uh, which has all British newspapers from 1660 right the way through to uh, 1900. Uh, Let's see. It's Irene. Thank you ever so much, Tabitha. And aren't all of us so happy that we read the Roy Porter book? Uh, Yes. I think that's just such a background for what we're discussing today. Yeah, the poor laws. We read, um, Chris and, and everyone else, uh, we read in the 18th century group, um, English Society in the 18th century by Roy Porter. And I think that was one thing that really stimulated our discussion because he did talk about the poor laws and, um, you know, indigent people, but he, he didn't really say anything about disability and we kind of felt left out. So, um, we wanted to rectify that. And the question I have is many, uh, my fan thing is, um, Georgette Heyer, sorry, Tabitha, uh, uh, but uh, many of the people that are in the book, uh, and, and this is upper class, they are all using a quizzing glass. So tell us about how your eyesight is affected by s- using a single lens to uh, look at things. Isn't that fascinating? I'm slightly um, unsure where Georgette Hare got this quizzing glass from because Benjamin Martin um, made binocular glasses uh, and he sold them in Fenchurch Street 
from about 1720 uh, right the way through uh, the century. Uh, and his glasses were green. And uh, I don't know whether you ever heard that uh, Robespierre, who was one of the leaders of the French Revolution, was called uh, Sea Green Incorruptible. And it was because he used Benjamin Martin's binocular glasses. And they would, they would have been uh, pince-nez, uh, which, uh, held, uh, which held themselves onto your nose. Um, but there was quite an industry in lens grinding, uh, and the Lens Grinders Company uh, was set up, in fact, in 1640 to make sure that the lens grinding was uh, good enough uh, because there had been rogue lens grinders. And you may or may not have heard of the German trickster hero, Till Eulenspiegel. But Eulenspiegel means gl- uh, lens grinder. And uh, he's also, and I cannot remember his English name, he is also mentioned in, in British uh, history. So um, uh, the, uh, the idea of quiz, I have never come across quizzing glasses in, uh, real, in 18th century literature that was written in the 18th century. And I have a, a feeling that uh, they were probably uh, more of an uh, affectation uh, because the idea in the 18th century was that if you were, if you had uh, natural sensibility, then you would uh, you would swoon at the uh, at, um, uh, at any sad news that would happen, and and having weak eyesight uh, might have been seen uh, as being somehow attractive, and also, of course. Uh, during the 18th century, people put atropine in their eyes uh, to make themselves look more attractive because it expanded the pupils. So my answer is I'm not sure because I haven't done the work on quizzing glasses, but the work I've done on glasses, glasses, binocular glasses, suggests uh, that they were able to uh, prescribe for both um, uh, long-sightedness and short-sightedness. Uh, Sorry, Irene, yes, go on. That's relatively the same as using a magnifying glass. Yes, uh, uh, I uh, I expect it is. And in fact, um, uh, I I use a a very small telescope when I need to uh, read road signs and things like that. But I use it very, very intermittently uh, so that uh, I I don't think it's sort of affecting what vision I have. Uh, What I was going to say, though, Irene, uh, to continue is that uh, I mentioned couching for cataracts, but uh, uh, that was uh, an operation on the eye that was done by um, male doctors. But there were a lot of women practitioners who used eye salves and eye lotions. And one of them, Mary Cater, gets a long mention in my book because I think she was amazing. Uh, And she practiced for 35 years from 1715. And uh, she had a shop uh, in Bengal Court uh, in the city of London, which was called The Hand and Eye. And uh, her advertising line was... Uh, that she did not use needles. Now, what she largely did was she cleared 
uh, eyes that had been affected by scrofula, which is a form of tuberculosis of the neck glands. But she has a, a, a really large number. I think it's something over a hundred uh, advertisements that she placed that you can find in the Bernie collection, where she is uh, talking about the cures uh, that uh, she's been able to uh, to, uh, to to do. But a lot of the work that eye doctors were doing. Uh, was removing uh, gravel and splinters from eyes. And uh, even the the doctors who couched for cataracts advertised uh, that they removed splinters. But, uh, of course, apart from cataracts, there were no other uh, cures for different forms uh, of blindness. Yes, and and I think uh, measles was another one, especially German measles uh, is another one that causes um, childhood blindness. And uh, what a fast. So, what was Mary's uh, cure um, treatment for uh, cataracts? She didn't treat cataracts, and uh, this it's quite extraordinary because. People are not sure uh, in the 18th century. People were really not sure about what happened inside uh, human eyes. Uh, they thought that the lens they called it the vitreous humor, and they thought it was the same as the uh, aqueous humor in the eye. Uh, they thought that glaucoma and um, Oh, one of the other eye diseases were the same thing. There's all sorts of problems with the understanding. Uh, and really, there was very little they could do uh, with uh, people who, uh, who, um, uh, who were blind. So, and this is why my book has a look at uh, the medicine of blindness and then goes on to people for whom medicine could give no help. And that's why I'm so interested uh, in uh, the way the London companies, who are the people that set up uh, apprenticeships, uh, it's why I'm so keen on finding out how they helped people. Because already just looking in one database, I have uh, discovered uh, a, um, uh, a barber who was taken on, though decrepit, and uh, he um, uh, uh, he uh, passed his apprenticeship and then became a master barber. I think we'd better let the other questions in now. There seem to be a lot more hands going up. Fantastic. Thank you. And we, I'm sorry, one more. Uh, and when are we going to get your book in audio? <laughs> I would love to. I've asked, I've asked my press to get it in audio, uh, and I will ask again after this session. Okay, so if you are on iPhone, your hand's raised. Um, it just says iPhone. Could you let us know who you are and ask your question? Yeah, this is Lynn. I think, I think that's probably who you mean. Yes. Uh, this is Lynn Corral. And one of the things I wanted to ask you was about did the people who are blind, live, did they live alone or did they have caretakers, sponsors? How did that work? And one of the things that I learned years ago in the 80s when I was in my 30s was about social control and social change. And a lot of what happened before the advent of the 20th century is, is that a lot of blind people were institutionalized and they were treated with charity and social control. 
and they didn't have any agency over their own lives. What do you think about that? Yeah, this is, as I said earlier, this is why I, I, I find working in the, 18th, uh, in the 18th century so much more fun than working in the 19th century. Because in the 18th century, um, the um, uh, people had a great deal more agency. Uh, they uh, were uh, able to make decisions about their own lives. Uh, and all uh, the, the charities, once the charity gave you the money they were going to give you, it was up to you to use uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the money the way you wanted to use it. And I'm sure that John Maxwell used his two pounds a year to pay for the publication of that first poem of his, The Reflection, so that he could um, continue uh, to write poetry and uh, he could uh, build up a, a career for himself once he was no longer reliant uh, on the charity. Now, with Priscilla Poynton, the case is, is quite different. She was an extraordinary woman. She traveled by herself. And one of the poems that she writes about traveling by herself is about traveling in a stagecoach with a number of men. Uh, oh. And they, they stop and have dinner. And the men cheat her and make her pay for the wine. And she's absolutely outraged by this. But she is a blind woman traveling by herself. And she tells stories about sending her, her box on ahead uh, so that she will then arrive in a town and so on. So uh, there was a lot more agency in the 19th century. The great incarceration, which uh, Michel Foucault calls the 19th century, is when, as far as I'm concerned, things went horribly wrong. Uh, Peggy, you may unmute. Hi, thanks very much for this. It's very interesting. Um, my question is, uh, I know that the, the guilds, the um, sort of um, occupationally related guilds played some role in the 18th century. And I wondered if there was any um, understanding by or any help from any of those guilds in, in um, occupations where, um, you know, you might lose your sight from doing intricate work, either like sewing or, or, you know, embroidering or something like that, or, or maybe working with gold or something. Um, did they ever have any support mechanisms for people that perhaps um, lost their sight because of their occupation? Peggy, that's my next project. Uh, I believe so. And as I, I mentioned to you at the beginning of the talk, that the Painter Stainers Company set up the first blind charity in England in 1710. And of course, if you were a painter, uh, or if, as you say, you were doing delicate work, then uh, it was uh, quite likely that uh, you might um, uh, lose your eyesight, or at least become partially sighted. And what I do know from the work that I've done in the Barber Surgeons uh, Guild, I, I'm calling them, you're calling them guilds, I'm calling them companies because they are companies. Uh, they're called the London companies rather than the London guilds, although they are directed from the guild hall. Um, but the, the, uh, uh, the, the London company of Barber Surgeons uh, both acted as a professional body to make sure that the work that was done was of a high standard, but also uh, they offered um, 
retirement pensions in the form of charity to uh, their older members who were no longer able to work. But I think certainly during the 18th century, you get a sense that uh, you have to work until you die. And uh, there is no sense of retirement. Uh, and I say that because uh, one of my uh, eye doctors who was particularly successful uh, in couching for cataracts uh, was approached, generally speaking, by older people who could no longer do the work that they were doing. So, for instance, um, uh, a, uh, a calico printer uh, came to him and then had his uh, cataracts couched. Uh, so that he could carry on working, because if they didn't work, then they had to rely on the parish and the money they would get from the parish, and they would get parish coals and a little bit of money, really wasn't uh, enough to keep up uh, a, a good lifestyle. So the association between work and blindness in the 18th century uh, is uh, something which I think is really important. We need to, well, I want to know more about it, and I'm sure you do too, because I think it was a, a similar sort of golden age to what we have now after our 2010 Equality Act, where people are expecting us to be in work. Yeah, thank you very much. We've got about four minutes uh, and one hand raised. Uh, Pam, copy. Wonderful presentation. Uh, my question is these treatments, quote unquote, that they were using um, for the per the ones that had what we now call tuberculosis and other such things. Is there any documentation that these treatments actually worked or were these just what we would now call quack medicine? Yes, they did work and they have to have worked because um, uh, one, of, one of the problems with Roy Porter's analysis of medicine in the 18th century is that he ha gives this idea uh, that quack doctors would operate and then run, and he calls them mountebanks and all sorts of things like that. Now, uh, Mary Cater had a sign outside her shop of a finger pointing at an eye and uh, she was there for 35 years. And as I said, she had uh, at least 100 advertisements saying that what she used cured people. So it must have done because people wouldn't have gone back um, and uh, they would have been able to find her if it hadn't worked. Now, also, uh, if you look at the medical handbooks from the 17th century, so the century before, uh, there are a lot of uh, medicines uh, uh, that are uh, that sort of that are general around Europe, which go back to the medieval period. And this is where I'd have to ask a medievalist friend of mine, but she will tell you that a lot of these cures were extremely good. But then I think people were suffering from more trivial things, perhaps, with their eyes than perhaps we are nowadays. Got it. Thanks. So we have two, uh, two minutes. I know we have one more hand. Can we try to ask and answer the question in like one minute? 
or oh now we have Rachel go for it yeah hi thank you so much I was wondering um about your book and I was wondering if there what what you're describing is is so great and would there be any way to um maybe any plans to put it as a documentary uh, as a film for some Uh, of these stories that you're sharing they're really great and uh, are even uh having them as a live theater performances as a playwright yeah, uh, uh, that that would be a great idea. Um, uh, there are no plans to uh, to uh, do anything like that. Uh, I've made a radio program for Radio Four, but I wasn't in that for very long, and it was generally about people with other forms of impairment. Uh, but uh, no, after this talk, I'm going to uh, approach Angie Hogan, my editor at Virginia, and see if we can do something about this, because I think it could be quite good fun. It would be great fun to do. And I think it would be very useful for people to uh, understand how things have been. And we can all, you know, barrage uh, UVA Press with emails if you think it would help. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Do please. Yes, I think that sounds like a great idea. The person uh, is Angie Hogan, A-R-H-2-H at virginia.edu. I don't know how. Shall I say that slowly? A-R-H-2-H at virginia.edu. You will let her know that we want to hear your book. I really, I, I really hope, and I, I said to her, it had to come out uh, as an in a, as an electronic mm-hmm. book, uh, and it is available as an electronic yes. book. And I think it would make uh, if somebody could really get behind it and read it. I think it would be uh, make a very good audible book. Yeah, I think that um, there because I you know, for their for our disability studies reading group, I've been you know trying to find books um, that you know, that are accessible. And it's kind of shocking how many books about disability are, um, you know, sort of marginally accessible. Um, So it seems like there's a a little gap there. Um, So we're officially over time, which I think is not the first time we've done this. Um, I cannot thank you enough, Chris. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, I think everyone really enjoyed it, and um, maybe we can convince you to to make this a semi regular appearance and come back every couple of months and and give us updates on all of your projects because they all sound um, really interesting. That's it. <laughs> we have to go. Um, everybody wants to unmute and say thanks to Chris, um, and thank you all for attending. I hope you enjoyed it and enjoy the rest of your day. And we'll be. You know, we'll keep to our 18th century and our disability studies reading and um, keep learning and exploring and sharing. And it's wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you. This was great. Thank you. It was great. Thank you. Yeah, it I was really enjoyed it. And thanks, Thank Tabitha, for doing this. This is great. Thank you. Thank you, you Chris. Much. Thank you all very much for coming. And Tabitha, I would be delighted to uh, to update you on things as they progress. And uh, I'd love to talk to you about uh, Nicholas Saunderson, for instance, yes. who's a wonderful person. Yeah, yeah. It'd be wonderful to keep hearing about your projects, even if you had a <laughs> website or something, to continue <laughs> yes. learning about your research. Sure, and- absolutely. Well, uh, you keep in touch with me. Tabitha, if you'd like to share my email with the group, I'd be delighted to okay. answer any, any questions people have. Yep. And we can listen to more of your reciting poetry. That is, <laughs> yes, that was great. That was beautiful. <laughs> yes. It's really wonderful to read poetry. I adore poetry. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
Oh, thank maybe you. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Thanks, everyone. Hi, Chris. Yes, Chris. This is Rachel. I'd love to stay in touch with you. Thank you so much. Okay. That's great, Rachel. Okay. See you all uh, uh, till later. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everyone. And thanks, Tabitha. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks, Belinda. Bye.